This morning we enter into a season uh, of Advent, and I don't know if that word means anything to you. Uh, if you're like me, I didn't grow up in the church, and so uh, I don't have much of a history with uh, the season of Advent, or perhaps you did grow up in the church, but in a less than liturgical setting. And so um, as we jump in this morning, I do want to explain a few things about Advent so that we're all kind of on the same page, so that we're all aware of what this is all about. Um, since the fourth century AD, the church has celebrated the season of Advent. It's a celebration that starts the fourth Sunday prior to Christmas and leads all the way up to Christmas. And so this morning marks the beginning of Advent 2016, hence the change of scenery, hence the candles that you see in front of us. The word Advent itself comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. The season of Advent is meant to focus our attention on the coming of Jesus, the arrival of of Jesus into the world, the celebration of his first coming and the hopeful anticipation of his second coming, both of which we'll talk about this morning. It's a constant reminder in the midst of so many distractions that Jesus is the savior of the world, very simply put. I don't know about you, my guess is that if it hasn't already, most of us in this room are about to experience a heightened season of busyness and distractions. Um, There are presents to buy, there are dinner parties to host and or attend, There are Christmas cards to purchase, maybe even create if you're a fan of Shutterfly and have any artistic ability whatsoever. I don't. My wife does. There's the revising of the list of people who actually get one of those cards based on who actually called you in 2016 and who didn't. Um, Maybe people to add, people to remove. There's family to visit. There are traditions to uphold. There are movies to watch and quote. There are songs to sing. There are recipes to be made. There are a lot of things that are about to unfold over the course of the next month, right? And as a church, we have a a real opportunity over the course of the next few weeks to cut through the distractions, even the good ones. An opportunity to to see beyond all the the tinsel, all the trinkets, all the toys, and to see the real treasure, to celebrate the greatest gift that we've ever been given, namely God. And that's what we're going to talk about over the course of the next month. At great cost to himself, God has purchased our redemption. He has purchased our reconciliation. For the next four weeks, we will celebrate the miracle of the second person of the Godhead clothing himself in human flesh. If that doesn't blow your mind, you haven't sat with it long enough. Um, Or perhaps you become numb to that truth. Um, It's arguably, most theologians would say, the greatest miracle that God has ever performed, even greater than the resurrection. For the next four weeks, we will celebrate that miracle, the miracle known as the doctrine of the incarnation, from the Latin word meaning becoming flesh. Jesus took on human flesh. J.I. Packer, in his great work entitled Knowing God, says this. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. That the wonder of a God, of the one who created everything, having to be taught how to spell the very things he created. That's crazy. The astonishment of the one who carved out mountains and valleys, having to be taught how to work with wood. The most exalted being in all of the universe entering into the slums of human history by way of the feeding troughs of Bethlehem, surrounded by a supporting cast of smelly barnyard animals. That's how you would have Come up with your redemption plan, right? It's really crazy. Christmas is meant to overwhelm us with the condescension of the eternal God. A God who would stoop down in order to raise us up out of our hopeless state. The celebration of Advent is the celebration, you might say, of the most glorious mission impossible ever. 
not only becoming possible, but becoming reality. And we have an opportunity over the course of the next few weeks to celebrate that God. A God who comes to seek and to save the lost. A God who's not removed from the story he's authoring, but actually became a character in that very story. Emmanuel, God with us. And to be sure, this is not only a celebration of the God who walks among his people. This is a celebration of the God who would die for his people. That You could say it this way. The coming of Jesus is nothing to celebrate without the crucifixion of Jesus. That in Christ, we have on full display a God so filled with love for his people. If that's you, a God so filled with love for you, let me make that personal, that he would take on a killable body in order to sign the check for your ransom in his blood. A God who frees the captives, a God who gathers the outcasts, a God who pardons the sinner, a God who heals the hurting, a God who, as we sing every year, we just sang these words, a God who rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glory of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So welcome to the party, church. That's what this is going to be for the next month. This is going to be a a big, heartfelt glory to God in the highest. If you don't experience some sense of celebration, we have missed it. We have failed to come in with wonder and anticipation and expectation of God to move amongst us. Most of us in our minds picture the story of Advent as beginning in a stable, right? But it actually begins, it's a story that begins in a garden. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open to this morning's passage should be fairly easy to find. Very first book of the Bible, one of the first few pages of the Bible, just past the table of contents. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's hard to understand, that Bible is yours as the church's Christmas gift to you. So please take that. Let me pray for us and ask God to move in our midst this morning. Father, we come to you and we ask you to move in our hearts to swell our hearts with anticipation, with expectation this morning. For most of us, we've, we've done this thing called Christmas so many times that uh, we may have lost our sense of wonder altogether. Or perhaps we, we still have our sense of wonder as it pertains to all the tinsel, the trinket, and the toys, but, but we've lost our sense of wonder as it pertains to you, our ultimate treasure. And so I pray that you would open our minds to the wonder of the incarnation, that we would walk away this morning with our head hurting a little bit because we've actually sought to focus our minds on this glorious miracle of our God taking on human flesh. And that, God, that truth wouldn't remain in the realm of intellectual ascent, but would work its way deep down into the recesses of our hearts, our very beings. Uh, God, so that we might be moved uh, to go out and to be a light in the midst of the darkness. Father, you sent your son, and Jesus, you now send your church empowered by the Spirit. And so I pray that we would be a people who would step out with boldness, with humility, to point people to the one true light of the world, and that you would prepare us for that in the next few minutes to come. We love you. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of your Spirit, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, this morning, we are going to spend a little bit of time in the Garden of Eden, That may seem strange. It's the first unwavering declaration of God to send this hero to save God's people from their sins. 
And, and truth be told, if you think about it, if you were around for the story series back in the spring, this will click a little bit, starting to make sense. You'll remember we talked about some of this. Truth be told, Advent can actually be traced back further than the Garden of Eden. The hope of a coming Savior can be traced back all the way to God's creation of the world. His shaping of the cosmos into a theater. The very stage upon which Jesus would take on human flesh. The very stage upon which Jesus would die in the place of sinners. Without the stage, there is no place for the redemptive historical drama to take place. Without the stage, there is no Bethlehem. Without the stage, there is no Golgotha. And if you really want to blow your mind, Advent can be traced back even further than the creation story. Because the Bible tells us, 2 Timothy 1.9 and Revelation 13.8, that before the foundations of the world, before the clock of human history ever started ticking, before there was any sin to die for, God planned that his son would die for sinners. Before the world as we know it ever existed, before this theater ever was, God already had in view the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. God already had in view the hanging of the crucified Savior on a splintered Roman wooden cross. Advent has been in the mind of God since before the foundations of the world, the Bible tells us. So why spend our time in the Garden of Eden this morning? Well, if Advent is about the fulfillment of a promise of God to redeem his people, the first that we, from a human perspective, get a glimpse of that promise is in the garden. In other words, man's first encounter, our first encounter with God's mission impossible is found in Genesis chapter 3. It's in the garden of Eden that God makes his unwavering, unwavering declaration to send a hero to rescue his people from sin. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It's up on the screen. It says this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the famous declaration that God makes to the serpent Satan in response to sin's entrance into the world. Many of you are familiar with this passage of Scripture. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, knew of a world that we know nothing of. A life lived in the midst of a perfect utopian garden sanctuary. A land of abundant bliss. No thorns and thistles. No drought. A land filled with every tree pleasing to the sight and good for food. A world that would have aesthetically made the land of the truffula trees and the Lorax look boring and sad. A world in which man had all that he needed to make his taste buds dance. A world without fickle hearts. A world without bondage to sin. A world without fear and shame. A world without suffering and death. Nothing to hide. Nothing to be embarrassed about. No barriers to intimacy. A perfect relationship with the God who created all of that. A world in which everything sad was actually untrue. Can you imagine? For those of you who bring brokenness into this room this time of year, what a glorious world that must have been. Which makes the unraveling of the story in Genesis 3 all the more devastating. Right? Genesis 3 tells of man turning from the fountain of everlasting joy to drink from a broken cistern. Choosing a life of self-determination rather than a life of glad submission to the one good glorious king. The forbidden became a delight to the eyes. 
first human beings to inhabit the theater of God chose to sin against God. And in a blink, the world as we know it was forever changed. The loss of paradise, the loss of Eden, the loss of God's perfect utopian garden sanctuary, and most importantly, the loss of intimacy with God himself. Genesis 3 is devastating. I don't know if you know that. If you haven't seen that, you haven't read it uh, intently enough. It's a devastating chapter. It's not a fun chapter of the Bible to read, at least not if you have any sense of the brokenness that fills this world as we know it. But it's in that very same chapter that we encounter what theologians refer to as the proto-euangelion, proto-first, like prototype, euangelion. It's where we get our word evangelism. means good news. The first good news, the first gospel declaration is found in Genesis chapter 3. God promises in verse 15 to humiliate Satan. The one who deceived our first parents in the garden so long ago, God promises that he will lick the dust of the earth, which is God's way of saying you will be humbled. You will be brought low. In verse 15, God says, Satan, I will create enmity between you and human beings, hostility. God essentially declares in verse 15, Satan to be the villain of this divine redemptive historical drama. Satan is the fire-breathing dragon. Man is not to trust him. Man is to view him as an adversary in this story that we're all a part of. Yet verse 15 doesn't just declare the villain, does it? But also the hero, the dragon slayer. It's verse 15 that provides us with the declaration of a future baby in a manger, a future crucified savior. Let's read that verse again, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that the ultimate battle is not between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Rather, the ultimate battle is between the offspring of the woman and the serpent himself. He one of Eve's descendants, shall bruise your head, Satan. So there's a hero coming, a descendant of Eve. Sounds very Narnian-like, doesn't it? Who will ultimately crush Satan's head. Yet it won't come without a bruising of the hero himself. Does that sound familiar to anybody else in this room? Genesis 3.15 is the declaration that Jesus will take on a bruisable body. Where do we first see that bruisable body? Answer, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You ever connected those dots? You ever thought about that? The story of Christmas is the story of God's fulfillment of his promise in a garden so very long ago. Imagine the anticipation. Imagine the longing of God's people as as they waited all those years represented by your Old Testament, which is much thicker than your New Testament constantly looking for the reality that all those shadows in the Old Testament point to. Asking the question over and over again, is that him? Is that the hero? Is he here? The one who will slay the dragon and pave the way back to Eden, pave the way back into the presence of of our good God and King? What an unbelievable thing it must have been to look down on that tiny baby resting in a feeding trough and to know that the dragon slayer had finally arrived. That's cool. There are all those years of fighting not to lose heart. Some of you know what that's like. Waking up to a fallen, broken world day after day, year after year, generation after generation. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, he's here. The light entering into the darkness of our fallen, broken world in the humble trappings of a smelly stable. It's crazy. 
surrounded by blue-collar field workers and pagan Gentile astrologers and court magicians. Talk about unclean. Glory to God in the lowest. The way that Jesus stepped onto the redemptive historical stage is God's way of making a statement to humanity. I'm not here for those who think they have it all together. I'm here for the rejects and the ragamuffins. I'm here for the sinners and the tax collectors. I'm here for the pagans and the prostitutes. Jesus came to give hope to the hopeless, love to the unlovable, joy to the despairing, peace to the anxiety-ridden. If that's you, I have good news for you today, and his name is Jesus. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is the embodiment of love, and he is the fountain of everlasting joy, everything that we celebrate this Advent season. Now, this morning, we find ourselves on the other side of this miracle known as the Incarnation. Right? We don't have to anticipate. We don't have to long for the promised hero to finally arrive. Or do we? See, in some sense, we understand and can relate to what the people in the Old Testament experience. Yes, Jesus has come. Yes, we can celebrate the one who has clothed himself in flesh. Yes, we can celebrate the one who took on a bruisable body so that he might die for the sins of his people. Yes, we can celebrate the one who delivered the death blow to the dragon, our great dragon slayer, Jesus Yes, we can celebrate the one who signed the check for our ransom in his very blood. All of those things are celebratory. There's much to celebrate this morning and throughout the course of this entire Advent season. Yet there's also much to long for, just like God's people in the Old Testament. We still live outside of Eden, do we not? The world as we know it is still filled with the thorns and thistles of financial hardship. Some of you know what that feels like this time of year more than any other as your bank account just dips lower and lower and lower. Miscarriages and labor pains, broken homes, sexual abuse, sickness, and even death. Many of those very things contributing to the enhanced sadness that many filling this very room experience this time of year. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you have recently lost a loved one this time of year. And you know what it's like to wake up this time of year and to feel that loss. Some of you know what it's like to experience the, the strenuous nature of family drama that shows up at a, in a heightened way this time of year. And on and on we could go. For those who know something of this broken world at all, the doctrine of the incarnation offers hope this morning. For one, it declares that we worship a God who's not removed from our brokenness. Rather, we serve a God who entered into the brokenness. He didn't just take on a bruisable body. He surrounded himself in the flesh with everything that makes this world sad. We serve a God, Hebrews 4 tells us, who is sympathetic to our weaknesses. We serve a God who is sympathetic to our suffering, to our sickness, to our pain, to our loneliness, to our brokenness, to our betrayal, to our disappointment, and ultimately to our sadness. We serve a God who's not light years removed from knowing what it's like to live outside of Eden. Rather, we serve a God who stepped into our broken story and knows what the brokenness feels like. That's your Jesus, Christian. If life is hard for you right now, that's your Savior. Secondly, in terms of hope, the doctrine of the incarnation declares that our God is a God of his word. He keeps his promises 
like those who have gone before us, we can trust that a hero will someday come to make everything sad untrue. The same Jesus who made his appearance in a lowly manger 2,000 years ago will come again. And when he does, no more thorns and thistles, no more financial hardship, no more sin, no more being sinned against, no more putting our hope in things that disappoint, no more sickness, no more pain, There'll be no such thing as a broken relationship ever again. No such thing as a single parent home ever again. No more poverty. No more hunger. No abandoned children. No sexual abuse. No more hate. No more sadness. No more funerals. No more running from God. No more hiding. In the end, we who are in Christ will dwell with God with no fear of being banished from his presence ever again. That's glorious. We will be his forever people, and he will be our forever God. On that day, the promise that God made in a garden so many years ago will find its ultimate and final fulfillment. And and hear me this morning. If you come in wounded, if you come in with scars, hear what I'm about to say. Every wound and every scar including those that increase your sadness this time of year, every one of those wounds and scars will have prepared you for an eternal weight of glory. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his work, The Great Divorce. He says, Some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to receive that Christmas present. The day when Jesus returns to make everything sad, untrue. When Jesus returns to wipe it all away and overwhelm us with his love for an eternity. This Christmas season, we can choose to put our hope in tinsel and trinkets and toys. Or we can enjoy those things knowing that our ultimate hope is found in none of them. Our ultimate hope is found in the one who came to redeem us, and his name is Jesus. If you're not a Christian, let me throw out a thought to you this morning. This idea of Jesus entering into the slums of human history says something about man's ability to claw his way back to God, back to Eden. T.F. Torrance, in his great work on the Incarnation, says this. He says, The birth of Jesus was a real advent an act of God's grace, a coming into man. And as such, it carries with it a disqualification of human capabilities and powers as rendering possible an approach of man to God. The virgin birth, he says, is the doctrine that the movement of the Son of God to become man is one directional, from God to man. It cannot be reversed. That God came to us is an unwavering declaration that we could not get to him that we couldn't do enough to bridge the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness. Christmas, hear me, Christmas is an indictment before it's a joy. Christmas is a declaration of our deep need for a rescuer, a dragon slayer, a savior to come. We can never claw our way back to God, back to Eden. Christmas is the celebration that we don't have to. Christmas is the celebration that we can lay down our arms, that we can stop trying to impress God that we're free from the empty chase of of seeking to earn God's love, that God has done what man can never do, that he has bridged that gap that we could never bridge. And he did so, I love this, 
in a way is to communicate that all are welcome. From the dirtiest of blue-collar shepherds to the most pagan of astrologers. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I invite you to lay down your arms. I invite you to come to Jesus, bringing nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith. And to trust in him for salvation. To see your Savior on display in a feeding trough in Bethlehem this morning. And if you are a Christian, we have an incredible opportunity this morning. And not just this morning, but throughout the course of this entire Advent season. To to celebrate the reality that he actually came. That's crazy. We, We take it so for granted that Jesus actually showed up. That it was a promise that God came through on. That the dragon slayer came and delivered the death blow to the evil dragon. This is a fairy tale that has a good ending for those who trust in and love the dragon slayer, Jesus himself. He actually showed up. And by his wounds, the very wounds that God promised that he would receive in that garden so long ago, by his wounds, we are healed. So let me leave you with a couple of questions this morning. What is it about this Christmas season that compels you to celebrate Jesus, your rescuer? Jesus, your healer? Think about that. What is it that, that, that makes it matter personally to you that Jesus entered into the slums of human history and took on a bruisable body so that he might write the check for your ransom in his blood? What, what is it that you come face to face with this moment in your life that you go, thank you for salvation in Christ? Because left to my own devices, I'd be hopeless. Because it's in seeing that that we can celebrate the hope of the Savior, the one who has come to give us hope. The second question is this. What is it about this Christmas season that causes you to long for his glorious return? It's so easy to get caught up in the here and now, to to blink, and all of a sudden January's here, to have missed it. What does it mean to slow down and to acknowledge gratitude and to express that to God for this joyous gift that is to come when he returns to set all things right, to make everything sad, untrue? What is it about your life, about the way your story that is unfolded that makes you happy about that day to come? We have an opportunity to celebrate and to anticipate, which is what this season is about. And so I invite you to make the most of of these next few weeks. Let's do that as a church. Let's celebrate a God who would stoop down to raise us up out of our hopeless state. Let's Let's celebrate a God who who rescues ragamuffins and misfits. I don't know about you, but I'm on that list. Let's celebrate the most unbelievable mission impossible having become reality. Jesus did so much more than drop down by a rope. Let's celebrate the baby lying in a manger who's now the king seated on a throne.